Okay, cool. Um, today we have Magali Thompson joining us on, on the podcast. Um, Magali, would you like to give your introduction to yourself, the background? So what have you been doing um, as a professional and what you are doing at the moment? Sure. Hi, Arachelli. Uh, thanks for inviting me on today. Really good to speak to you. Um, so I'm an architect uh, by background and two years ago I applied to this organisation, Public Practice, who are a social enterprise who um, place built environment professionals into um, local authorities. Um, I was actually not put into a local authority. I was placed at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, it's an 18-month placement which will now be extended which is great um, and my role there is project lead for placemaking so what that consists of is um, essentially working with stakeholders within the hospital so everyone from staff patients parents also uh, local organizations and trying to, to to make us look outwards more and create links with organizations like Coram's Fields and also obviously very closely with them um, Camden who are the local uh, local authority within which we are placed um, and the aim is to create a vision and brief if you like for a child-friendly and much healthier and safer public realm around the hospital. Cool. Thanks for that. Um, can you go just a little bit deeper? What do you mean by you were placed? Because maybe we have some young um, aspiring people that um, want to get into either um, urban planning or within the city urban um, professions or maybe within public, uh, sorry, within um, public health. Um, so who is public practice and what do you mean by being placed? Sure, yeah. So they're an organisation which was set up, I think, about five years ago um, now. And the idea was that they they spotted that in many um, local authorities, planning departments in particular, were maybe sometimes struggling with um, capacity. Um, I think it, it was in the 1950s or 60s, the statistics show that uh, lots of architects in particular went straight to to, to local authorities and it was a very popular choice if you like and this has gone right down to, to a very small percentage in that it, I think at university it's not really thought of as, as, as an option or, or, or as an appealing choice in the way that it was before so public practice was set up to to address that if you like and um, what you do is you apply um, you don't have to be an architect there are all sorts of different professionals who apply, services engineers, um, landscape architects, um, sort of some sort of more strategy or marketing type people. Um, and the, yeah, that, that it's got more and more popular. And, and what they try and do is match you, if you like. They look at your profile. It's quite a thorough application process. And, and they try and match you with somewhere where they think your skills will suit what that local authority is looking for. And generally, it's just a one-year or 18-month placement, which can be extended. Um, and, it, yeah, it's been in London, but it's now growing outwards. We've had, within my cohort, there was or someone in Cambridge, two people in Oxford, uh, one in Brighton. So it's, it's gaining traction um, and becoming, yeah, really, really popular. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Um, and so now let's get a little bit more into the detail of your work. So um, do you want to 
do you, well, you can start however you like. You can sure. go macro and micro, but sure. definitely very interested in in the fact that you are working with children. Um, I don't know if you've had that as part of your background, but um, regardless, can you tell us just a little bit more about um, why the focus on kids? How has working at um, at Great Ormond Street Hospital has it changed the way that you the view that you view the role of architecture? Um, um, has it re- helped you reframe certain things within your practice? Yeah, sure. Uh, in terms of working with children, when I was uh, working in private practice, I headed up the education team in the office I was in then, Mark, Spar- Mark Sparfield Architects. Sorry. Um, so I've always always been interested in spaces for children and how children use space and yeah I loved working on schools and designing on schools and working with teachers as well and yeah finding out about different ways of learning inside and outside those kind of connections and how important they are at a young age so that interest has always been there um so when I then started at Great Ormond Street Hospital I was delighted I mean it makes sense so that was obviously why they matched me up with Great Ormond Street Hospital Um, but I hadn't worked directly with the public realm up until then I'd always been working I I guess with buildings and the spaces around around buildings but um, I mean part of my reason for starting public practice and I also started a master's at the same time which I can talk about also um, was that I was just getting more and more interested in the spaces around buildings if you like the spaces in between um, and so looking at the at the spaces around the hospital uh, was like really exciting. And the hospital is a bit of a campus in that, well, there's an island site, but slowly they're sort of moving into buildings around that island site. So the journeys and routes between their various buildings gain become much more important. And um, the... The irony, if you like, is that it's it's not a safe environment. There, there's a huge amount of congestion and traffic, a lot of anger because of all the traffic jams and and issues like that, and it's completely the opposite of of, a, of what a child friendly environment ought to be like. Although when I say child friendly, I mean it's not friendly towards anyone, but um, in this case, it's a children's hospital, so that's sort of relevant. Um, and in terms of air quality, which has become the focus of my research over the last year that was a, that was a fairly new subject to me so I've been learning about it along the way and and I guess becoming more and more shocked if you like at, at how bad it really is and I mean clearly at gosh the focus is on making children who are already unwell better but um I guess I'm looking at it from the outside thinking what's the point of guess you know what's the point of having a street which is over the world health organization um recommendations so often and you know, what's the point of making these children better if they walk straight out onto streets like this one you know it just seems it just seems crazy so I, i'm i'm looking at it more from the point of view of i guess trying to create environments which are preventative which we're actually where you don't get that ill, you know, healthier spaces. So that doesn't actually happen. That's, um, that's a really good, um, introduction, um, to, (laughs) to architecture as health. We're going to put a pin on that and come back to that. Um, 
But going just a little bit deeper into the Great Ormond uh, Street Hospital, so for the listeners um, that may not be familiar with the hospital, it's a highly specialized children's hospital um, in the UK that treats children all around the UK. Um, sorry, it's set in London, but it services all of the UK for highly specialized children's diseases. So from childhood cancers all the way to um, diseases that perhaps haven't even been um, identified. And there there is one specific patient to 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 talk about a little bit, which is Ella Roberts, who's now playing a big role in the air pollution campaigning and conversations. Um, so Ella, um, I believe, was 12 years old when she passed away. She has only just now, and that was in 2013, only now in 2021, has she been given the autopsy um, declaration that she passed away of air pollution, but she was being treated at Ormond Street Hospital. And what you said about the preventative side, and this isn't at all a criticism, it is a where are we in terms of understanding health, but also where are we in understanding health in place that no one really looked at air pollution as the cause to Ella's acute asthma and acute asthma attacks. And as you're saying, going to a place to heal from a severe illness, but then coming out again directly outside of that supposedly healing environment into an environment that is going to be corrosive to health again. So if you if you know the story, Magali, um, do you want to talk a little bit more? Um, because I think it really highlights what you're saying about the internal and external environment in terms of how do we view healing? Yeah, no, of course. And, and obviously, um, Ella um, lived in Lewisham, which is the area where I've done my master's research as well, which I'll be speaking about. But um, yeah, I think it, I think it's um, a really important landmark case that's happened over the last year that we're all very much aware of at Gosh. Um, and I think the interesting thing, I, I was reading about a mother uh, who was saying that um, every time she brings her child in who also suffers from asthma, she's asked, do you smoke? And she always says, no, I don't. But no one ever asks her, do you live in a polluted area and I was thinking what what we should be asking those questions in the same way that we ask do you smoke um why don't we treat pollution in the set in the same way um so I I'm I'd be really keen for example within gosh to I mean there are obviously privacy issues but to start looking at where cases are are you know where where children live in terms of 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 map some kind of mapping exercise looking at polluted polluted environments and asthma cases for example would be really interesting so we'd start to make these links if you like and start to yeah I suppose overlap uh, urban environments and architecture with health and mm-hmm. yeah tr- try and understand the connections better. Yeah I think it's a really precise and direct example of what we're calling or what is now more and more either saying architecture, uh, healing architecture or architecture as healthcare. Um, I mean, we're, we often use planning as healthcare as well at mm-hmm. Centric because, I mean, you can turn it into healthcare. At the moment, it's not. 
but also the view that what we have always have been meant to be in, which is an environment deep in nature, nature is very healing to us. Um, there is a paper, for example, that I recently read about how the demineralization of water, which is most of us what we drink because it has to be incredibly sterilized because it is recycled because we do have a water shortages, but the way that we solve the problem by completely demineralizing water will have an effect on us because we are then taken away from the from those minerals that are very important to us, such as calcium and sodium, which you can find natural in, in natural water. So, you know, how do we how do we come back and reframe that the environments that we live in are part of our nourishment, the direct part of our nourishment? But going back to to Ella and and the work that you're doing in Lewisham and making that connection is that I'm pretty sure um, that I got that fact correct, and it's also in the gar- in in the papers. Um, so I, when I spoke to um, Rosamond, um, which is Ella's mom, um, I asked her, you know, did you know? the correlation between what was happening to Ella and air pollution. She said no, but she hasn't been the, as you said, she hasn't been the only mother we got. We got, uh, we had a mother that got in touch with Centric with a very similar story. Then we talked to another practitioner um, from Whitechapel and she says that some of her constituents are also being asked the same thing. Do you smoke? And Mm -hmm. then um, Sufian from South Hall also had uh, respiratory problems and he was also asked that same question do your parents at home smoke and the question isn't being asked what is around where do you live yeah and and how is that correlation to to your health and then as you said having something where um you know and either a gp gets in touch with or has access to centric type data where they can go okay we're getting three, four, five people, or we're getting one, you know, one is, 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 is what we think is enough to start doing something with saying that they're getting sick. What, and then going to centric and saying, okay, what is the data saying about this environment? And then again, going to from there for a practitioner like yourself to say, okay, well, this is what we have to do because there is a link. And then, as you said, you are then doing what we think is, actual preventative health, a preventative health, the way we have been looking at it, that is just on the individual, which is the question again, do you smoke? That's such an individual or an individualistic mm. way to approach health. Yeah. Um, and, and without looking at the, the externality. So, um, yeah, how would you, so the first question there would be, how would you envision that, that supply chain looking and then to, if you want to go from there and segue into your Lewisham study, because I'm sure within your Lewisham study, you have found some very interesting findings and, and data points. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so I think we need to just be a lot more thoughtful, I think, and systemic in terms of how we evaluate our spaces and neighborhoods at the outset of our projects rather than jumping straight in with potential solutions that's what I try to do with 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 the research I carried out I mean in terms of the research um, it was a study into the travel patterns and environmental exposure of babies and young children 
in Lewisham, um, which is a borough in the southeast of London. And I was looking at how they are impacted by the environment and the potential knock-on effects on their health. And um, I did a number of things in terms of the methodology that I used. So firstly, I did a lot of um, data analysis. Um, I can go into each of these in more detail, um, but overlaying different data sets to see what that showed up. Um, I also issued a survey, which I had 119 responses uh, to which with some interesting responses actually uh, which I'll also describe and out of those respondents three of those individuals agreed to keep a um, diary of their travel patterns over the over three days just to look at that in, in a bit more detail and finally I did a, a, a policy uh, um, an overview of existing policy in London and in Lewisham to see whether that user group the zero to five-year-olds are considered at all so that yeah that was that was my approach so I can describe those in a bit more detail if that's yeah useful. that would that would yeah. be, that would be amazing. So um, could you start why Lewisham? And I get, why oh, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. I actually started. I, uh, my initial aim was to do it in Bloomsbury, which is where um, where Gosh is located, cause, because I thought it would be really interesting to do it where where I'm working. Um, this was, I think, in uh, around the second lockdown at that point. And I just found that uh, trying to speak to people and issue surveys in an area that you don't live in or are not connected to is really difficult. So I think I, I, I had nine survey responses when I tried to do it in, in Bloomsbury. Then I thought, you know what, I think I'm going to have to focus on an area that I really know, which is Lewisham, which is where I live. And um, I think it just shows that, it, that if you do want, well, how important it is to have a, a connection with the place that you're doing your research on, because suddenly, I guess people are more open to, to, to responding to a survey or listening to you and talking to you. Um, so that that was a bit of a learning curve. So that's that's why I ended up in Lewisham. I mean, I think it was partly affected because of lockdown as well, which meant people were less willing to speak and had, you know, were dealing with a, with a lot of other things in their lives at the time anyway. So that's why I ended up here. Um, I, yeah, that's a really important, I think, side note, what you said, yeah. not even side note, it's an important note to talk about the doing the research, you know, that be, you are part of that community, because what we have identified is a factor in erasure is when people just go with a top down approach, whether it is a practice, as in whether it's a scientist or a public health practitioner or a um or anything within the urban realm of, you know, my knowledge is the knowledge that is going to unearth <laughs> the, the right problems and is going to be above, you know, the, the local community's knowledge. And of course that is, that isn't true. And that is part of the, of the malaise that ends up happening that, that people don't even know how to ask even the right questions and take away yeah. the right type of data because they are, they're not native to, to that, to that region, to that specifically, they're not native to that community and understanding yeah. the dynamics of it. Okay, cool. So yeah, I mean, whenever you're ready to delve into your findings, that's, I'm, <laughs> I'm really yeah. excited to find out. Yeah. The, the, your data points and what you used in your methodology and what you found out. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, well, first, I started by trying to to 
establish how many zero to five-year-olds were living in Lewisham and I broke it down into wards which are a bit smaller uh, to see which wards had high numbers of zero to five-year-olds and then I overlaid that with the indices of multiple deprivation data which is data which which uh, points towards um, um, yeah uh, towards things not being distributed equally if you like to see where, where the most deprived populations in Lewisham were, were living. Then I started using the centric lab data so I started with a stress risk score which um, measures um, air pollution as well as sound pollution, thermal and what's the other one? Um, air, thermal light. and light, sorry, yeah. Um, and it, what's interesting is that if you just use one of those data sets, that wouldn't be enough. But when, when you when you overlay them all, you start to see that there are three wards in this case, which were struggling or scoring highly in terms of all of those. Um, I also added some more metrics. So I, I added the information about percentages of households experiencing fuel poverty, uh, children with an adult who's out of work, and percentages of children living in low-income families. And again, the three wards, which are Evelyn, Lewisham Central and Newcross, um, were, were struggling or scoring highly within all those categories. And it just makes you realise, really, that, um, you know, that there's a huge amount of, multi, you know, multitude of negative factors affecting the everyday lives of those children and carers um, and that that's really challenging so I think yeah it, it was that was really interesting and then Josh helped me as well providing me with some zoomed in maps if you like at street level so really um, really um, interesting analysis looking at individual streets in Lewisham um, and how they scored in terms of these four pollutants and onto those I mapped locations of um, nurseries and primary schools and there are a lot a lot of organizations like that for for small children um, in on those streets um, so I think that's a, that's a real issue uh, so you know even if you take better routes to and from a nursery or to and from a school you're still you know in that nursery or in that school for a large amount of, of day of your time each of those days so, so, so sorry, Magali, to interrupt. Um, I just yeah. want to extract a couple of points from what you were saying. So the first one about using various different data sets and unearthing a different picture, perhaps maybe even a more complete picture. Can you can you walk us through? Because I know that you talked about this in public practice, but again, in doing this type of work, methodology is everything. Um, we have run into various examples where you can just look at, and we some and we did sometimes we, when we started, we just looked at the SRS, which is the the simple, sorry, the more direct environmental stressors to a person. But when we layer that with IMD data, which includes socioeconomic status, includes the quality of your home, includes your exposure to violence, et cetera. So I'm more of the lived experience. 
that turned a, that turned a, a, that turned it into a very different picture where we're like, oh right, that is actually one of the most mediating factors to the environmental stressor. So if you are, if your lived experience is that of deprivation, you are going to be more at risk for the effects of environment for the effects sorry, of environmental stressors. That's a very different picture than just simply looking at well, who's being exposed? Oh, so this community is being exposed more, therefore more vulnerable versus this community is being exposed to more environmental stressors. But on top of that, the lived experience is also more harming to their to their health. And on top of that, as you said, they are in exposure for longer. Hmm. That's, that's a very, again, that those are very different points of data that give a very different information and thus create a very different narrative than just simply looking at one thing and saying, oh, which which sometimes gets used to Mm. say, oh, there is no link. And then Mm. you leave populations feeling really, um, yeah, really erased because you're saying, well, I'm still experiencing that even if you didn't find anything in the data. So do you want to walk us through... um, your your thinking and saying, okay, well, one data set isn't enough. I need more. Yeah, I think. Um, well, that sort of appealed really when I when I first learned learned about your stress risk score and using that that data. The fact that it was several pollutants, for example, rather than just looking at air quality on its own, I thought that was really interesting because I'd just been focusing on air quality at that point, and then looking at your urban health inequity the concept um, of well that is when in fact when you overlay the two data sets related to deprivation and pollution and you start to get a much clearer picture of of what's happening to these people's lives and um, it's not just that I think even probably from pregnancy that that sort of that environment will have affected the growth of that baby from the moment it's born um, from when they go to school um, I started doing a bit more reading about susceptibility and the fact that um, with each exposure if you like the problem gets worse it's not like one moment in time it's a problem that's growing and gets worse and worse and there's the yeah the reason for focusing on zero to five is because those years are so key in terms of developing the main organs in your body and everything else um and again that's a concern and a lot of these urban policies and interventions take so many years to happen you know that that can be half a lifetime for a child and that can have knock-on effects on on their life later so i just find it really interesting when you start to look at these things more holistically by overlaying these different sets of data you you just get a, a better understanding uh but scary as well because you, you you see how much impact just that one road for example might be having um yeah so i think doing that was really interesting but i do think you also had to sort of do the survey and the more um qualitative analysis if you like in terms of talking to people to to make to make the data or to learn even more about about the area and what i was looking at 100 percent. yeah actually yeah yeah, go in uh, if you can go in a little bit deeper with that because yeah experience directly the speaking to people um again is another crucial crucial uh point and to um probably not to give unnecessary hierarchy but if you were you know 
it's so much more important for two reasons as far as, as centric's research has unearthed is that one the scholarship from people within the area will always be deeper right because they are living it every day and it's important i think that we recognize it as scholarship um an expertise um an intellect and two there are just nuances that you that you that you begin to understand like when we started looking at at like what we called at the ground level learning about as you said how that one road and if you are in the case of a child you don't really have a say as to no. how you're going to travel the built environment. Yeah. Um, so, so that's it. If you're, if you're, if your parent maybe is time poor and they constantly have to use that main road because mm. that is the fastest route or at least the fastest route to connect to transport, that, that is your every day. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, so please definitely, yeah. Um, talk to you a little bit more of the lived experience. And then I wanted to go back again to a statement that you said about, you know, when you start looking at all this data, you start to realize how much that body is being burdened. Um, so we can talk a little bit of biological inequity. So, um, yeah, if you can tell us more about the lived experience and then we'll go back to biological inequity. Sure, yeah. So you're so right, Aricelli, in terms of the expertise and intellect. Um, one of the questions I asked on the survey was um, um, how do you think you have a good or fair awareness of air pollution? And 64% of people said they did. And then there was a there was the opportunity to write down streets where you thought you, or you felt that they might be more polluted and all of the streets that people wrote down are actually located in some of the GLA's um, air quality focus areas which are areas which go over the um, European limits um, where so so people were able to people you know we talk about it being an invisible threat but actually people know where it is which I thought was interesting with it with it with a good a really good degree of accuracy um, and in terms of con being concerned about air quality affecting their health or their baby or child's health 92% of the respondents were, were worried about it in relation to their children's health as, as has been the case in other surveys people had noticed an improvement in air quality during the first lockdown um, but and interesting as well, 80% of people thought said they would take an alternative route, even if it was five minutes longer, if they knew it was it was healthier. So that was interesting. There was one street, which I think, again, shows that if I just relied on data sets, I wouldn't have found this out. Um, everyone was talking about this one street, Drakefell Road, being, you know, particularly bad. And and it does it does measure badly, but maybe not as bad as other streets in Lewisham. And it's only by walking down it um, that you realise it, it's a very narrow street with too much traffic on it for its width, if you like. And also cars try and park on either side of it. So they're actually straddling halfway across the pavement as well. So if you've got a buggy or, or a wheelchair or whatever, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to actually go down, which I just thought was a good example of... Um, of perception and understanding that it's not just about the pollution but it's also about your experience walking down that street how comfortable how easy is it are you actually able to to go down it so things like that I wouldn't have discovered without probably going to that street to have a look so that was interesting 
Yeah, that's a really yeah. that's a really uh, very interesting point. I'm just going to put like a like a like a verbal highlight on that, especially for public health practitioners and and scientists that we get so arrogant about what and it, and, and it's always used in, in such a personal way, like what our data indicates, what our findings indicate, yeah. and that has to stop because we can't know it all just from data mm-hmm. and we can't know it all just because we are practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, that scholarship coming from the community to tell you, yes, these other streets are highly polluted, but this one, the combination, as you said, of also the cars being on top of you mm-hmm. is very, it can be a very oppressive um, um, experience. Um, and super fascinating about the ability to identify the area, the streets that are also highly polluted. Yeah. That we constantly highlight to practitioners that people know, people yeah. do know about the places that the, that they live. I mean, we're yeah. we're meant to know because all our six, or arguably more than our six senses are there to, to communicate and to understand and decipher our environments for our own survival. So that is really inbuilt in us as, as living creatures. And technically all living creatures have that inbuilt knowledge of what in my environment is safe, what environment, in yeah. my environment, environment, sorry, is not safe because that's our, what we strive for at a most fundamental level. We strive to survive. And as a, as a caretaker or as a parent, again, you, you, you strive for the survival of, of your offspring, like every other being. And so the idea that people are walking around, like there's, (laughs) I constantly get asked, you know, like, how do we get more people from um, from multi-ethnic uh, working class backgrounds involved in the conversation. I was like, what are you talking about? They are involved in the conversation. You're not listening. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that experience in terms of what are their conversations about in terms of we need to improve our environments? What are mm-hmm. their yeah, what are also their concerns? Okay. What are what that may be different to 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 the concerns you had initially to the when you started the project? Yeah, I think in terms of um, their concerns, uh, I was just surprised at at how high the percentages were for the the well, but both the awareness of air pollution as a subject and as an issue, and the concern with respect to their children's health. Um, in terms of where they in- attributed the the pollution to, it was it was mainly cars, overwhelmingly cars, and solutions that they were keen on, all related to, um, you know, schools, uh, quieter streets outside schools, or or anything essentially that reduced the use of cars. Um, I also asked about their uses of green spaces, um, and 88% use their green spaces either daily or over three times a week, which again I thought was a really high percentage. And that correlated with um, so the three participants, three women, agreed to just keep diaries of their movements over three days. And the what was interesting about that, and what I was trying to get from that, is that at this age. Uh, those sort of early years um, if you're if you don't go back to work if, if you're looking after your child during that time you spend a lot of time outside 
Um, so I guess that relates to exposure time. And I think on average, these three women were spending between two to three hours outside and taking these sort of tr um, these trips, if you like, with multiple stops. So it's a very different to, for example, your your average commuter who might just go into work and then back home again. These people take very unpredictable journeys each day in their neighbourhoods. Certainly, I remember from my maternity leaves, that's when I really got to know the area I lived in and walked down every single street, streets that I'd never been down. So you, you use your neighbourhood very differently and you're outside for much, much longer. Um, and that's 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 what this analysis of those three people showed. I mean, something that sort of depth of analysis with, with specific people is something that could have been taken further and I'd like to do more of. It was tricky because of the lockdown, but I think you yeah, really start to discover more and more about an area by doing that. Yeah, those are really, yeah, I, I, as you were talking, I can just imagine, I, got, I mean, we just want all the funding in the world to be able to do all these different things, but um, yeah. of, of being able to track um, um, exactly what you just said, these different, how, how does a, a, a parent navigate an environment differently because of the necessity of being, you know, of, of caring for a child versus an elderly person versus somebody who is neurodiverse. And again, how does that increase or decrease their exposure to, to mm -hmm. all of these pollutants? And, and there we can, we can then talk about biological inequity that, um, again, if, you, if you're just looking at data sets, sometimes you miss that Yes, it's not just that there is an inequitable distribution of these of these environmental stressors that mainly affects multi-ethnic working class communities, but it's also what they are doing within this environment that can increase the the burden. So for example, as you just yeah. said, a mother spending three hours a day, possibly more time in those in in those polluted areas than than a non-parent or somebody that is working somewhere else and then just coming back to the neighborhood um for for rest or someone that lives in that type of neighborhood but also for example could be a shift worker mm -hmm. what does yeah. that body look like in terms of in terms of burden and that's where you can really in that biological inequity which we have defined as the unequal exposure to biological stress because all these all these yeah. different scenarios that you've described are biologically stressful to the body what does that mean in terms of susceptibility and variability within a neighborhood so you get these 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 stories or the where two neighbors out of maybe 20 start to suffer from the effects of air pollution. And again, when you look at it from a data perspective or a practitioner perspective, you think, well, two out of 10 or two out of 30 is not significant. Yeah. And that I think when it comes to health is such an incredibly insidious and harmful sentence to say to call it insignificant because you might be dealing that with those two people they are the first to experience this because they might be shift workers or as you said they might be a new a new parent so is there anything that you want to comment in terms of 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 how of your research pointing into that direction of how much that lived experience plays in in the role of your body being burdened more or less no i think you're right i think it plays 
um, hugely uh, in terms of how you're impacted by your lived environment. And I think um, the issue with, for example, this user group of zero to five year olds is it's that it's their movements aren't particularly considered or planned for. I think when we look at neighbourhoods and master plans, it's still very much focused on getting, you know, you put the roads in first, getting from A to B getting to work, getting back from work. And, and you kind of forget that communities and society are made up of, of a lot more groups than that who, who do very different things and move in very different ways, often much more unpredictably. And I think understanding those movements takes more time, which people maybe don't always have, but it's it's really necessary um, to get under the skin of those kind of communities and those kind of movements so that we can design spaces with everyone in mind rather than just those much easier to understand um, movements that, that, that yeah, those commuters and people like that take. Um, and then, yeah, I think that starts to give you a much more nuanced or layered uh, understanding of a neighbourhood. Um, and you also need to just go and talk or listen to people uh, again, which is something I would have liked to have had more time to do once this all, all of all of this layering of data, if you like, pointed to these three specific wards. I guess the next step would 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 be to then go and actually talk to some some of the people living in these wards to 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 find out to find out more um, what they're doing, uh, what are their backgrounds, what are their jobs, and and that will start to to sh again show you. Well, the thing that you're saying that there may be 10 people living on a street and two people might be being impacted more. And it's really important to work out why. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. I mean, and, and then we come back full circle to preventative health that and, yeah. and um, planning or architecture as health that um, we, you know, we have to take that into consideration. I'm now coming on the health practitioner side that all those things are 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 putting a burden on us on a on a on a person and can be the reason that they are the first to experience it or they are the ones that are experiencing more acutely because that is certainly in in real time or in real practice that's what's happened or we what we've seen happen in the community in South Hall that quote unquote there wasn't enough people at the very beginning of the conversation for them to do anything because they said, you know, there's only a couple of you that are that are experiencing respiratory problems. And then from there, it's been, well, really, well, not everyone's sick. Is mm. there excuse for inertia? And you think, well, that's not how that's not how disease works, right? Disease is never going to be a direct line. It's it's again multifactorial, multi-pathway. And the variability of those who are more in that environment, less in that environment, also have shift work, are also you know are younger. All of those things, and yeah. we're and we're and we're really creating a very harmful dialogue and inaccurate dialogue when we forget to talk about the lived experience and when we forget to see those nuances. But as you said, it does take work and. But that's, I feel like that's also fine that it takes yeah. time and it takes work. Yeah. Um, that it, it's not, you know, I think because we live in such a, well, we pretend, I would say, that, that there's a pretense that we live in a highly technological area, uh, sorry, era, 
therefore things have to be really fast and the idea of being methodical or slow in terms of or even analog of going and speaking to a person and writing that experience down seems like well that's not where we are now in 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 our society we are we are digital can you have a digital solution for that it's like well sometimes if there isn't a digital solution you do have to as you said you have to go in and listen to someone and and them having to 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 tell you, you know, like, what you call it, like an embodied experience of listening, which is going down to the neighborhood and walking it with the person. And yeah, that does take more time. But like I yeah. said, I feel like that's, that's okay. Um, yeah. So do you want to now uh, take us to, to the findings? What have, what have been the findings? What has been the most, like I said, um, like changes in your own framing of things through the findings, and then we'll hit to the, what comes next? Sure. So for me, um, it's really helped me start to look at neighbourhoods as as part of a health, but also a caring infrastructure, if you like. And with resources and everything being as short as, as or as tight as they often are, I think it's so important to make every component work as hard as possible. So you're aiming for as many co-benefits, if you like, as possible. In terms of my approach in future, I'm really keen that um, that spaces and neighbourhoods are evaluated in a much more thoughtful and systemic manner, if you like, using the right data sets and the right metrics and taking the time to see what happens when you overlay those and and what do you discover when when that happens. Um, But alongside, you know, this nuanced understanding which you get from using the demographic deprivation, the SRS, and also the hyper-local street-level analysis, you have to have the understanding of the lived experience through the speaking and listening that we've been talking about. Um, But also observation, I think you can learn an awful lot just from spending hours in an area, uh, sitting somewhere in the background and just watching how people are using their spaces and their neighbourhoods. So I think if, if you if you look at spaces using both these approaches, if you like, it can really help to target and res- your resources and interventions in a more thoughtful and considered way. Um, in my case, I started with zero to five-year-olds, but I, but I just make the point towards the end of my research that it's really good to try and reverse the usual hierarchies. So put the vulnerable person or group first and start looking at a space from their point of view um, and see how you approach what you want to do from from that starting point. And finally, when you when you do put in whatever intervention or design or building or whatever it is that you're that you're working on, that isn't enough to just do that. You need to you need to measure it, the success, observe it in use, take a few steps back if required, come back every few months to check that it's actually working and to keep learning and improving it and if it's not working then start again or or take a few steps back I think that's really important as well that way you can learn and keep learning and share and ensure mistakes aren't made in future so that yeah that's kind of the way I'd want it to inform what I do um, in in the future and what I've learned from the from the study if you like Hmm. Yeah, there was two things again that you said that were really important. The the um, 
the the idea of starting with who society has made the most the most vulnerable because yes if you are catering for small lungs and you have to then reduce you then sorry would have to reduce air pollution by a lot but of course that's an improvement for everybody because yeah. um nobody should be should be ingesting any type of air pollution but unfortunately that is not how cities are done and, and you can see it right you can see it from mm-hmm. the subtleties of incredibly uneven pavements and it wasn't as you said when you sit and you observe and you sit with an environment that I I helped um a lady with a walker have to go have to navigate what for me I would have never clocked it as an incredibly uneven and unsafe sidewalk Mm. but doing that walk with her I thought oh gosh yeah even the curve's wrong the curve is too steep what are and then you just look and and you have such a different lens from 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 that experience and that you think yeah we we this wasn't thought through this wasn't thought through in 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 how a an aging body would would navigate this or somebody that there was um I can't remember where we saw that the reason one of the reasons that uh, the older that we get, we end up looking, sorry, we end up being hunched overs because we spend more time looking at the ground because that That's is where interesting. Um, because that is where there's a lot of vulnerability. But interestingly, I would presume more in the way in cities, the way that or the way that we're designing cities, because we do put so many obstacles on our sidewalks um, that we force are, uh, that when we that when we're older we force ourselves to lo- to constantly be looking down for the for those for those hazards um and yeah we probably shouldn't have that and then the other one what you said about the future the iterative practice of it you know we are going to enter in more volatile volu- sorry volatile times because of how climate change is che- changing our local weather right that what may work for us right now may not work for us later. Yeah. And that every ecosystem, when you look at it in the natural world, is constantly evolving and it's making these little iterative changes to to adapt of adaptation. And again, we don't have that in a in a city in a city situation where it is the opposite. We almost want, you know, we want permanence, so much permanence. Um, yeah. And in in our cities, and 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 that may not necessarily be the best in terms of making us adaptable, which is again inherent to to the natural world that we of adaptivity is is part of again of evolution and survival, et cetera. Um, but I wanted to now pass you over to to Josh in the terms of the what's next. Sure, I just going to add one thing about the different lens if that's okay which um, I should have mentioned earlier sorry the research that I've been doing is for the Bernard Van Leer Foundation and they have a program called Urban 95 and I think it's worth mentioning in that that uh, that asks you to put yourself in the feet of a 95 centimeters tall which is the average height of a three-year-old and I think it's a really good example of, of seeing the city from a different lens. Um, I actually fixed a camera to my son's chest at that height and we recorded his journey on the tube from Covent Garden to Great Ormond Street Hospital just to see what your experience is at, from that height which was essentially being pushed against coats and bags 
seeing traffic really up close, just seeing railings um, at eye level. Um, yeah, I think that perspective for this study was, was super important. And it, it, yeah, it's a good example of, of, of putting yourself in the shoes of different user groups and understanding the city from those different perspectives. Mm. I think that's um, almost a fantastic segue to what I wanted to bring up as, as much a commentary of listening to the conversation and knowing about your work and maybe, you know, then asking you to kind of respond. But I think one of the key words that runs through this conversation is the word exposure. Mm. And the reason I bring up the word exposure is that, and comment of this as you will, but I'll take a rather harsh tone to the role of the architect. And, you know, you'll go to every conference every event and generally you read a majority of books and uh, articles and they talk about health and well-being through the lens of well we spend 90 percent of our times in buildings mm-hmm. and i feel that's quite a misnomer it's, it, it, i think it's quite an inaccurate statement it, it implies that the you know our lives are very linear and that we are almost factory like that our times outside of being at home and work is just to get to and from either Mm. of those but when you know the way that you've talked about the observation uh that children have in the lives of uh, people caring for children the the very non-linear routes you know Mm. the fact that children should be spending four to five hours time outside the the kind of code of practice or the code of governance to our urban environment like the, the narrative is so far away from um you know, we should be designing places that we spend 90% of our time outdoors. Now, I get that weather has an influence, but we have like a real weird culture that we focus so much on the building and there is this overt focus on it that we forget the exposure side. And that that does run through to who is then responsible for the role of exposure. And I think this is the interesting gap that we're all kind of coming to find that there is... You know, there's a lot of digital infrastructure being developed for uh, development, but there's very little kind of human infrastructure uh, that's probably more needed to look at sort of human development in that way. And I, you know, when it comes to experience, I think yes, when it comes to experience in cities and places, we are generally relying on the benevolence of charities and foundations. That's not to discredit their work, but that's almost to a highlight that it is requiring the good rather than actually centering the focus of our quality of life at experience, exposure, enjoyment, rather than development and house building, which feels very much the, the core focus, certainly in the UK, of the, you know, the national planning framework from the homes, communities and local government. So uh, so there's a couple kind of comments there that I feel we, we've come around and I wanted to now kind of ask ask that in a, in a hopefully more precise question of if you look from where you've come and that those and, and where you're going and observing through this study, uh, you know, also acknowledging the work of the Greater London Authority who have helped support and establish public practice, but are also introducing a great level of um, insights and tools. You know, the, the GLA is a relatively young organization only coming back in around the year 2000 and having to sort of step up London in, in a variety of ways. But how do you see new infrastructure 
and that's not physical infrastructure that's probably more human infrastructure or, or or political infrastructure do you see an opportunity for new establishments or groups or organizations that are focusing far more on the the work that you've been um delivering and sort of uncovering how, how do you see the kind of the gaps starting to be filled sure thanks josh um i think you made lots of interesting points i think the the point about 90 percent of our time being spent till in buildings is is again this really narrow sort of understanding of who uses a city which purely mm. focuses on on the commuter really and if, if there's there are a few things in response to what you've said which I think as a as a result of the pandemic may hopefully be changing I mean one of them I think is it has highlighted the role of the carer uh um, it, it, as being a really important role in terms of how cities and communities work, which needs to be valued and understood. Um, and also the role of the community, if you like, who, who maybe stay in their neighbourhoods more and the kind of networks that were created just in a fairly ad hoc um, and natural way in response to the pandemic when it first started. Um, I think those those are the things that we need to grab onto and and grow, if you like. Um, and the other thing which is is I think no one can disagree with is it, having been through what we've all been through over the last year, is the importance of the outdoors. I think I think that has gained a huge amount of crack, traction and and in terms of how we design our spaces or our or our, our homes, um, the access to the outdoors is just so key in terms of everyone's mental health and well-being um, not just obviously during lockdowns but all the time and I, I think people are realizing that and their organizations like the quality of life foundation who who, who are doing lots a lot of positive work uh, moving those kind of things forward and I think those are the kind of conversations we should probably be trying to have with with local authorities and with developers um, to ensure that we do take forward some positives out of out of the experience that, that we've just well still going through. Um, yeah, I think does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I think um, yeah, I, th I think the quality of life are, are looking at uh, a number of good community oriented issues around development. I guess I'm more curious as to actual sort of preservation and we have existing environments we have the need to retrofit we almost need new charters and codes mm. uh, on the, the governance of areas and places that perhaps do require different skill sets and this is what i do admire about public practice it, it is bringing in different skill sets and um a, a continual almost tutelage if that's the right word to to look for all the members of public practice you know there's a lot of further education i'm not trying to sell the you know the scheme to people but what i do see is is it is a piece of infrastructure that is completing and sort of filling a number of uh roles and i think it's quite important that we we do endeavor to move the narrative of change and new divisions and, and roles away from the notion of development that we create new roles that are about preservation and that role is not someone who is um, in a different department I do think this is a role of built environment professions and uh, there's a I, I'm, I'm afraid I 
the name evades me, but there was an article in Places Journals, I mean, it's like a 30-minute read, uh, that talked about the role of the landscape architects. Uh, you know, do they really believe themselves as landscape architects and what its classic term means? Or are they people who end up just designing nice little parks next to big corporate buildings? And in that, you know, the responsibility should evolve into into more sociology, into anthropology, into mm-hmm actually being leaders of social change rather than going, well, I've got a nice bit here to make some change on. So I think that that's where my, my gut, I think this, this is very much my personal narrative, but when I hear you speak, I, I hear a lot of it being echoed. And I don't want to try and flush my own ego, but it, <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to do. But uh, you know, I think collectively we, we do need to create these new forms of infrastructure because when it's all being created around, around one narrative, which, in the UK feels very development oriented. Every development is going to come with costs. And until that development comes against a framework that is more attuned to preservation, I think more people are going to face more negative costs. So I think that that's where I'm kind of seeing the gap. And that's where I see the opportunities of, you know, really opening up the kind of work that you're doing and the way that you've articulated, there's this gap here. People aren't listening to people over here. We need to use these new tools here. We're starting to see new um, infrastructure sort of at the beginning of being formed. And that's mm-hmm. that to me is very interesting. That's what I've really enjoyed listening uh, to you today. So um, yeah. I guess, do you have uh, a Jerry Springer moment that you would like mm-hmm. to uh, leave us with? Or is there a kind of a, a final thought that you would like to to put out at all? No, well, just to, sorry, add to what you were saying, Josh, I think you're right about the different skill sets. And I think that's what I've liked about public practice and also about the masters that I've been working on in that they're not all architects. There are people from completely different fields from, um, there's a guy, Carla, who exports fruit and veg or the head of fire from Philadelphia or on public practice. There are people who are from all sort of different sides of the built environment in terms of you and Araceli and I've kind of been learning more about biology. And I, th- I think when you start to learn from all these different skill sets and work together, um, the continual learning experience in itself is incredibly rewarding. And I think that that's when you can start to get much more nuanced solutions, which, yeah, which which can hopefully work much better as opposed to just approaching it from your one professional sort of little viewpoint or box, which we've, we've often been sitting in in the past. So I think, yeah, for me, that's been really rewarding over the last couple of years. And that's what I'd like to be doing more of. That's awesome. So if people do want to have a read of your uh, study, is, is there, when will it be published? Is there, will you be promoting it through your own social media? Is there a way that people can get in contact with you if they like to learn more about the work that you're doing? Gosh, would that be through your, your Twitter or is there another way that um, you'd like people to contact and see the work that you're doing? Sure, no, contact me through Twitter. And in terms of the paper, that's um, <clears throat> that's with the LSE at the moment. And as, as soon as I get it back, I'll, I'll be um, distributing, distributing it. So I'd like to hopefully do a talk about it as well, because I think um, a lot of it is about looking at the images and, and the, I guess I'm an architect, but I quite like explain, explaining it, looking at all the data sets and, and, and maps. But yeah, that's the plan. So in the next month or two, hopefully. It sounds good. Maybe we can factor it in with the Urban Health Council or an event further down the line. That would be great. Yeah, sounds good. Great. Well, Magali, thank you very much for your time today. Um, look forward to speaking to you soon. Araceli, anything from you? 
it's, it's been really educational listening about the work that you're doing. Brilliant. Thank you both and also for all your support in terms of my research. It's been really good to speak to you.